G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Let's face it, we like winners. We want to hang around with successful people. And yet when Jesus was hanging there on that cross, he looked like anything but a winner. In fact, given all that he'd said and done and promised, frankly, he looked like a dead loss. Hi, I'm Bernie Diamond, and thank you so much for joining me again on Christianity Works. Today, not surprisingly, we're going to spend some time at the cross of Christ to wrap our hearts and our minds around exactly what was going on there, exactly what Jesus was doing for the likes of you and me. So let's head into God's Word and please do stay tuned because in just a few minutes I'll be telling you how you can request your free copy of our latest life application booklet. It too is called Who is Jesus, and it's all about helping you draw ever closer to your Lord and Saviour. Perhaps one of the biggest objections I ever had to Christianity was what I observed to be a kind of a self-righteous hypocrisy. On the one hand, they'd put some old guy on the news and, and he'd tell me that this was wrong and that was wrong. And on the other, that that same denomination had a club with gambling and poker machines in it, not far from where I lived. I mean, come on. Is it any wonder that people weren't flocking to church on Sundays? Well, that's how I saw it. And so for me, that equaled Jesus, which equaled God. And, And frankly, who needs that sort of religion? Pretty impeccable logic, really. Until, well, until you take the time to look at Jesus himself. Tell me, how would he respond to the church with poker machines? Well, actually, we know, because in his walk on this earth, he had to deal with almost exactly the same thing. Well, this week we're heading towards Easter, and over these last few weeks we've been looking at at this series, Who is Jesus? And today I'd like to particularly look at Jesus in that difficult week leading up to the first Easter, in that difficult week leading up to the cross. And it began with a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're not going to go there and look at there now because we we don't have the time. But it was like a rock star entry where Jesus rode this donkey into Jerusalem and and the church celebrates it now as, as Palm Sunday. And people were cheering and shouting, Hallelujah, and, and the Messiah's here. And straight after that, he gets into Jerusalem. And one of the things, the thing we're going to look at today, is he goes to the temple. And he kind of behaved a little bit, on the surface at least, like one of those quixotic rock stars on dope. You know the ones that get on stage and they smash their guitars and they do all these weird things? Well, what he did was a little bit different to that, and the motivation was different. But on the surface, it must have looked a little bit strange to the people in that day, he went and cleansed the temple. See, have a listen. This is how Mark puts it. Jesus came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple 
and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned their tables of the money changers and the seats of all those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Isn't it written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard this, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. See, the temple was the place where God was. He was in the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary. And the temple was the place where animals were sacrificed, doves and sheep and bulls and goats. And what was going on here is that the traders were playing and praying on the people, the great lamb scam, as I call it, because people would come to sacrifice to God and they would have to buy sheep and bulls and goats and doves. So the traders moved into the courts of the temple and they were selling substandard animals for sacrifice because only the best was good enough for God. Only the best, only the clean, perfect dove or sheep or lamb or bulls or goats were acceptable for sacrifice. And this practice of, of selling substandard animals and, and trading and, and doing all these things was worse still sanctioned by the religious establishment. It's kind of like... Well, like a church with poker machines, really. It's religious hypocrisy. And you don't have to look very far to discover that religious hypocrisy is still alive and well today. So, I'm not knocking all the churches, absolutely not. You see, people in churches, average everyday people who believe in Jesus, do so much good that out in the world people don't see, serving the poor, looking after them, loving people that others won't love. And, and often our societies miss that. But you see, there is still religious hypocrisy, and there was religious hypocrisy in Jesus' day. Elsewhere, another account tells us that Jesus actually made a whip and drove people out of the temple. See, the temple is the house of God, and you enter the courts and there's the smell of animals and the noise of money changes, and for convenience for all the pilgrims who came to the temple, they moved the market into the temple. There was noise and commerce and cattle and exorbitant prices and unfair money changing, and Jesus directly challenged the authority of the chief priests, throwing down the gauntlet. Look at the reaction. The leaders, the religious leaders, were plotting to see how they could kill Jesus. No wonder. He was challenging the hypocritical, cushy system. They were afraid of him because the crowds were spellbound by his teaching. He was either a madman or a genius. People were looking for something. They were looking for someone. They were on a spiritual journey and Jesus comes and he's so real. He's so authentic. He so goes right to the heart of the hypocrisy and distortions of the religious system. He's the guy that hung around with, with prostitutes and lepers and tax collectors and he healed them. And he directly challenged established religion and its hypocrisy. This is no mamby-pamby saviour. This is not your kind of soft, stuffed toy, cuddly Jesus. This is a wild Jesus. He goes, could you imagine he goes into the temple? He, he makes a whip. He drives people out. He turns the tables upside down. He screams at them. You couldn't put this Jesus in a box. You couldn't contain him. Now, this is the only time he does this. 
And it's important to understand that Jesus had compassion for little people, yet he had this rage for religious hypocrisy, this cold religious establishment. And the flip side of him, important to realise, is that Jesus was humble and kind, and he changed lives and he healed people, and he transformed people through his love. But when we look at this ugly end of the scale, so often people think, well, that, that must be what religion's like. That's what Jesus is like. And yet Jesus railed against religious hypocrisy. That's Jesus. If we ask, who is Jesus? We see him in this last week before he was crucified, standing up against economic and religious systems that suppressed people. And maybe that's all some people saw of him and ignored the quiet, hidden, not noisy, not public things that Jesus did to touch people and heal them. Whatever or whoever else Jesus was and is, he's not a religious hypocrite, and he railed against it. He was an advocate of the little people, little people like you and me. And as we'll see, that's what cost him his life on so-called Good Friday. Bernie Diamond, and you're listening to Christianity Works. I just want to take a moment during this short break to share something truly important with you. To celebrate Easter this year, I've written a new life application booklet called Who is Jesus? to help you draw ever closer to your Lord and your Saviour. You see, my passion is seeing you live in a rich, powerful, dynamic relationship with Him. That's why I'd love to send you your very own free copy of this latest booklet. It's full of life-changing, practical Bible teaching to help you draw even closer to Jesus. And at the end of each chapter, you'll find some life application questions to help you kind of think through and apply God's Word right into the realities of your life. So to request your copy, stop by our mobile-friendly website, ChristianityWorks.com, or give us a call toll-free on 1-300-722-415, and we'll send your free booklet straight out to you in the post. Again, that's online at ChristianityWorks.com, or toll-free on 1-300-722-415. Now, one of the last things that Jesus did before being arrested, tried, and crucified was to celebrate the Passover with his closest friends, the 12 disciples, one of whom was about to betray him. Let's go and take a look. I have a confession to make. I love food. I just love it. I grew up in a European household and I learned to cook when I was young. And Mum worked in the early evenings teaching piano, so I often cooked dinner for the family. So I've established my credentials. I love food. So it's not very often that I go off my food. It takes a lot for me to turn down a meal. I either have to be really sick or I'm really dreading something. I think in my first 48 years of my life, I could count on one hand the number of times I've gone off my food. But when you're feeling deep pain or real fear, well, I know for me, I just can't look at food, let alone host dinner for 12 other people just before I was arrested and crucified. So what was going on at the Last Supper? We're looking at the last week of Jesus' life leading to Easter, before he's crucified. And this is such an important time because, you know, when someone's under pressure, 
When, when the chips are down, when people are after someone's life, that's when you really discover who they are. And I know we look at Easter as being bunnies and chocolate Easter eggs and all that sort of stuff, and that's nice, but Easter's not about that. Remember, Easter is an assassination. It's a state-sanctioned execution where Jesus was tried and falsely convicted. And this was a tough week for Jesus. It was a really tough week. Now, if you have a Bible, grab it and open it up at Mark chapter 14, because that's what we're going to look at right now. Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. I just want to take a brief look at this Last Supper, which I guess we've seen the painting that's been painted and we kind of, you know, we look at it from a distance. But this was the night that Jesus was portrayed, the Last Supper. On the first day of the unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and make the preparations to eat the Passover? So he sent two of the disciples, saying, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is my guest room, and where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out, went into the city, and found everything just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared for the Passover meal. When it was evening, he came to the twelve, and when they'd just taken their places and they were eating, Jesus said to them, you know, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were distressed, and they began to say to one another, surely it's not me. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the one by whom the Son of Man is to be betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. So here he is on this thing that that we now call the Last Supper and we see the paintings and and churches regularly celebrate Holy Communion. It's become like a a solemn ritual. You know, we we have the little pieces of bread and we have the little glasses of wine or or juice and, and we all do that. But this wasn't a ritual. This was the Passover meal. It was a celebration of one of the great miracles that God did many centuries before to free the Israelites from Egypt. And they would eat roast lamb with rosemary and have red wine and have unleavened bread, which is a little bit like pita bread. And this was the week of the assassination plot being well underway. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the festival or the people might riot. And the twelve disciples knew this and there was a deep sadness and a fear, like a, like a pall of fear hanging over the group. And Jesus was just entertaining his guests. He was sitting with them and he knew that he was about to be crucified. He knew he was about to suffer pain and death. And yet he sits there and while they're eating, I'm reading this from Mark chapter 14, verse 22. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take this, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will never drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then we know that that Jesus washed their feet, 24 feet, 120 grubby toes. The Son of God is about to be crucified. He washes their feet, even the feet of the one who would betray him, Judas Iscariot. 
And after the meal, he took the bread and he broke it and he took the wine and he gave it to them. It wasn't white, soft, fluffy bread. It was unleavened bread, brown and gritty. This is my body broken for you. This, this cup represents my blood. Take, drink of it. This is the basis of God's new promise. My blood will be poured out for many. All the time, Jesus is thinking of his, his disciples, of you and of me. And in humility, he washes their feet. He even washes Judas's feet. Doesn't accuse him, doesn't condemn him, doesn't hate him. Even washes his feet. Isn't, isn't this fabulous? Jesus has his closest friends, the last supper, the last meal he would spend with them. He knows he's about to die. And yet he takes this ragtag little band of fishermen and tax collectors and ordinary people, people like, like you and me. What would happen next would turn the world upside down. What happened next opened the doorway to God so that you and I could walk through. But here we see Jesus with his friends, inviting them to his table, inviting us to his table to eat lamb and bread and drink red wine to remember what God has done. I'm Bernie Diamond, and you're listening to Christianity Works. As we take this short break, I'd like to tell you about a free daily resource that I'd love to send you to help you draw closer to God. It's called Fresh, a short daily devotional, a powerful scripture verse together with some words of inspiration, hope and encouragement delivered right to the inbox on your smartphone, tablet or computer each and every day. Or if you prefer, you can now receive a printed version delivered right to your letterbox. It's completely free. To get instant access either to the digital or the printed version of Fresh, stop by our mobile-friendly website, ChristianityWorks.com, and you'll see the Fresh e-devotional sign-up right there at the top of our homepage. Or if you prefer, give us a call toll-free on 1-300-722-415 to request the printed Fresh devotional. It's completely up to you. Again, online at ChristianityWorks.com or toll-free on 1-300-722-415. So go ahead, sign up to receive Fresh and may your heart be touched and transformed as you draw ever closer to Jesus through His Word. Well, let's get back into it. Let's go and discover together what made this particular Friday so good that these days we'd call it Good Friday. Well, so Jesus was arrested and and he was crucified. They called it Good Friday. (laughs) What's so good about Friday? I guess every Friday is good. It's the day before the weekend, but not this particular Friday. It's a day when the criminal justice system broke down, a day when justice became a sham. It's a day when an ugly, angry mob demanded a lynching, a day when an innocent man was flogged to within an inch of his life with blood pouring out of his wounds and the soldiers spit running down his face. He dragged a huge cross along the Via Della Rosa to the hill they called Golgotha. And there... They nailed him to that cross, and over the next few hours, in excruciating pain, he died an agonising death. Justice? Good Friday? Not that particular day. We've all experienced, I guess, bureaucratic buck-passing, been handed from one department to the next with no satisfaction. You'd expect more of the criminal justice system, a fair go, a fair hearing, a just outcome. Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. 
who goes and, and hangs himself and he's handed over to be tried for what? Now there's a problem. You see, Jesus got up the noses of the religious leaders because he struck at the truth, he struck at the heart of things and that threatened their corrupt, hypocritical system. He claimed to be the Messiah, the King, and I guess the Roman Emperor could have been threatened, could have seen it as a political threat. Jesus, King of the Jews, maybe Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman Empire, maybe Israel would succeed. (laughs) Jesus was this one man who never took up arms. He had 12 disciples, fishermen and tax collectors, as though Jesus would overthrow the Roman Empire. And so first, he was tried by the chief priest. Are you the Messiah? No answer. So they beat him and mocked him. And then he went before the council, the Sanhedrin. Are you the Messiah? Yes. Again, they rejected him. And then they sent him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, if you like, who had the power to have him crucified. And they accused him. They said he was against the emperor, he doesn't pay taxes, he's the king of the Jews, he's going to threaten the Roman Empire. And, and Pontius Pilate says, mm, no, I don't, think, I don't think I want to be part of this. So he duck shoves Jesus off to King Herod. And Herod was kind of half Jewish, but he was an illegitimate king, and the people hated him, and the religious leaders prosecuted Jesus in front of Herod. And Herod wouldn't do anything and send him back to Pontius Pilate. Can you believe this bureaucratic duck shoving? Here is a system of justice, supposedly, that's just gone mad. And then finally, he comes to Pilate. If you have a Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 6. Now at the festival, Pilate used to release a prisoner for them, anyone whom they asked for. There was a man called Barabbas who was in the prison with rebels, who'd committed murder during the insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. Then he answered, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was only out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Pilate spoke to them again. Then what do you want me to do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted, Crucify him. Pilate asked them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more loudly, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. And Jesus just stood there, the Son of God, who could have stopped this, he had the power, just stood there and took it all. Pilate said, I I found no ground for this sentence of death, and yet... This Jesus who just days before had been welcomed into Jerusalem like a superstar was now to be crucified. You find out a lot about a man when he's under pressure. He stood there and he took it because his job was to take my burden of guilt and your burden of guilt and and to pay the price of death that you and I deserve in God's eyes on that cross. What an incredible injustice. And yet, Jesus took it for us. And right when he was crucified and when he died, Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 38, tells us the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. You see, when Jesus died, when he cried out his last breath... 
the curtain of the temple, the place where God was in the Holy of Holies, was torn open to you and me. The door to the throne room of God was flung open. The first time in history, you and I have access to God. Direct access to God. Not through a priest, not through someone else, but through Jesus Christ. We can walk boldly before the throne of grace. And it's a door that we can only walk through if we believe in this Jesus who died for us. (laughs) Was it a good Friday? Well, if you were Jesus, it wasn't. It was a terrible Friday. Jesus, the Son of God, carrying all our sin. Jesus, the Son of Man, going through the pain and the torture of a crucifixion. But ultimately it was a good Friday. Because on that day, God opened the door. On that day, from the cross, God cried out a personal invitation to you and me. Jesus cried out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For one reason, and one reason alone, did God forsake his son, so that you and I could have an eternal life, so that you and I could be forgiven. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God who hung on that cross, who suffered and died for you and for me. Well, that's pretty much all we have time for today. But before I go, there's something very important that I need to share with you. This program, Christianity Works, is encouraging so many people in over 160 countries to live in a rich, powerful and dynamic relationship with Jesus. But that's only possible through the generous support of friends like you. And indeed, each dollar that you give towards the Ministry of Christianity Works today will help reach almost 3,000 people with a gospel message. So a gift of, say, $35 can touch over 100,000 people with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. So let me encourage you to give a generous tax-deductible gift to Christianity Works today. You can do that right now, securely online, by visiting our mobile-friendly website, ChristianityWorks.com, or by calling 1-300-722-415. And when you do get in touch, please don't forget to request your free copy of that life application booklet that I mentioned earlier. It's called Who is Jesus? Again, it's online at ChristianityWorks.com or toll-free on 1-300-722-415. Thank you so much for your generous support and for joining me today. I'm Bernie Diamond. I'll catch you again same time next week with another message of God's love, God's grace, and God's power for each one of us in Jesus Christ.
Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.